Hi, and welcome to episode 39 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. David McIntosh joining us. He is a pediatric ENT specialist in Australia who has a strong interest and focus on sleep disorder breathing and the possible link between upper airway problems and orthodontic disease. He is the author of the book, Snored to Death, and he will be traveling to the United States on March 14th, 2020 to present an ENT training day covering topics like ENT anatomy and physiology, snoring and sleep apnea, tongue tie release, reflux, allergic rhinitis, otitis media, ENT surgical procedures, and CBCT interpretation. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Well, first, I want to welcome you to the Untethered Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm really excited to have you as you're our first ENT to, to join the show. It's, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. So first, I would love to know a little bit about what you do and what your focus is. Um, as I know, not all ENTs are created equal. <laughs> sure. No, that's, that's a fair comment. Uh, so sometimes the best way to ex- explain the endpoint is to explain the process of how we get to where we get to. So my background is I'm in Australia, uh, so we do our medical training and then we do our surgical training. And the surgical training is pretty generic. You know, you've got to cover a, a lot of territory. Uh, ear, ear, nose and throat is a big specialty. And then by the time you get through uh, that training, you sort of, you know, within that specialty, find the bits that you gel with and the bits that you're sort of not so keen on. And you continue to, to differentiate. So ENT, you could out that you know being really interested in head and neck and throat cancer Mm. or you could be really interested in sinus disease or ear disease and for me it was pediatrics and also airway and airway actually includes pediatric and adult populations but the big one was pediatrics so when I finished all my ENT training which also included doing a PhD along the way I went and did an extra year just purely pediatrics no no adult ENT at all just to really build upon that. And throughout that time, again, it was a major focus was on airway. And when I came out through that process, that's, that's pretty much what I wanted to get out there. I wanted to get out there that we've got problems with airway. And I can remember uh, when I would go and meet with uh, medical family doctors and I'd say, look, you know, we've got to be on the lookout for kids with sleep apnea. And, and some of them were, were shocked to learn that kids even got sleep apnea. They, they, they'd never even known that that was a thing. Wow. So, so that's quite, I think, important and insightful to realise that across the, the, the medical spectrum, you know, ENT or otherwise, there, there is a great diversity in terms of areas of interest and areas of knowledge. So when it comes to myself with ENT, my, my, you know, my three big areas of focus basically are paediatrics, airway and nose and sinus disease and they all actually come together quite nicely so that there's a good integration there and 
one of the things I, I noticed as I sort of progressed through, and, and this has actually been you know, a valuable part of my learning and education, uh, is that surgery doesn't fix everything. Uh, we, we can go and be the plumbers and get things unblocked, but that doesn't automatically default in it working again. And it wasn't until I stumbled across a, a few uh, dentists um, that had an interest in airway above and beyond what my perception of what dental in, interest would be that I could see that, you know, there's a lot of heavy hitters in the dental community uh, that actually know a lot more about this than the medical uh, general population do. So I started to work and integrate with them and and then found these sort of, you know, areas where uh, they thought they knew things about ENT um, that I could sort of just try and sort of guide and suggest that, look, I understand that that might be your understanding, your perception, but let me give you a different perspective and, and see, you know, how you might relate to that. And likewise, they've done the same for me. And then as you start sort of, you know, dipping your toe into that water, you start expanding your network. Then you start to come across speech language therapists, myofunctional therapy. Um, I remember doing a, a talk uh, way back here in Australia in about 2009. Um, and the, um, that was at a, a dental orthodontic uh, meeting. Uh, we're talking about you know, the importance of airway management as part of orthodontics. And the, uh, the person um, that uh, was, was running uh, that seminar, um, you know, sort of just sitting there in the background, just sort of hearing what I've got to say, having never heard me speak before. And, and one person in the audience said, you know, what do you do when your surgery doesn't work? And I just said, well, you've got to look at my functional therapy. And, and it was like a pin dropped in the room because <laughs> they, they were absolutely dumbfounded and astounded that, that an ENT – um, that was never on their radar. You know, I was sort of obviously just, you know, coasting along in my own little world as we often do. Um, even, you know, had any insight or awareness. And, uh, and I think that's really important is, is that unless you find these things and sometimes you, you stumble upon these things by accident more than design, if it's not in your education, right. that, that will then lead to a, a better understanding and rounding of managing the problem. So that's, that, that, that's your long answer. Yeah, no, I love it. I think that's amazing because um, as I mentioned, we you know, mentioned to you before we started, I pulled some speech pathologists and myofunctional therapists and RDHs who are in this space. And I think that one of the issues, at least here in the US that we're up against is that there are not a lot of ENTs that are airway centric. And when we when I discuss this with some of my patients, they look at me like, like I have five heads because they're going, but airway, isn't that what an ENT does? Isn't that like, you know, in their job description? So, you yeah. know, it's, it's hard to explain that to patients because yeah. we're, you know, I know one of the big questions um, that we run into a lot is, well, what do we do when we have, let's say, enlarged adenoids, enlarged tonsils? I know, and I work with a lot of preschoolers and I, I know because I, I talk to ENTs locally, that there's a lot of risks that come with that surgery, at least for the tonsils, there's bleeding risk, there's dehydration risk, you know, um, I'm not sure if there's other risks, but that's my understanding. And so I know they would prefer to not do a surgery if possible. But I think one of the big questions we run into is, well, if we don't do the surgery, and we've now t- tried a round or two of, of antibiotics, or, you know, Flonase or Nasonex or whatever we're using in the nose and, and you know, antibiotic wise, and they're not shrinking and they're still blocking the airway, but 
the ENT feels that the child's sleep is not interrupted or they don't get sick all the time or they have a closed mouth posture, you know, when they're in their office, even though they're not necessarily looking at them while they're asleep or awake. Um, and they clearly have a orofacial myofunctional disorder or they're, they've got, they're a selective eater because it hurts to swallow or, you know, they've got functional impairment, um, we're up against the wall because then we go, well, how can we expect this child to close their mouth and make progress in therapy if their airway is not patent? So, you know, I guess my question for you is like, what is your protocol? What, how do you address this? Um, you know, and I guess the loaded question is, how do we, how do we talk to other ENTs or what do we introduce them to, to have them understand more of it from, you know, an airway centric perspective? Yeah. So, so, so you, you put a great amount of detail on the table there. Yeah. And I think that's, 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 that's going to fill out the rest of our chat. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it's good because these are the common themes. These are the things that mm -hmm. come up repeatedly. So I'm going to do my best to rewind to, to what you reflected upon and, and try and start from the beginning as, as yeah. best I can and, and work through that. Yeah. So the first thing I, I, you sort of mentioned is, you know, say, well, isn't that the domain of the ENTs? So, um, it's all about understanding and perspective in terms of ENT being a big specialty for starters. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it's interesting, ENT seems to be the specialty where people just on a general level don't get it. But when I give other examples, it clicks straight away. So the two examples that I give is that um, within general surgery, okay, you can differentiate into, for example, doing breast cancer work, mm -hmm. or you could differentiate into doing a bowel and can, you know, bowel cancer work. Okay. They're both general surgeons. Okay. But if you're sitting in that, that chair and your, your family doctor says you've got breast cancer, you don't for a second think about anything other than I'm going to go and see the breast surgeon. Right. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't cross your mind that you're going to be sent to a general surgeon that does breast cancer work. Yeah. You're going to go and see the breast surgeon. Likewise, the other analogy is that if you have a problem with your knee, you see an orthopedic surgeon. You don't see the orthopedic surgeon that specializes in shoulders. Right, right. It, 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 you know, so yeah. you go, oh, so I need to go and see the knee surgeon. Okay. Now, sometimes there'll be a general surgeon that does a bit of both. Sometimes there'll be an orthopedic surgeon that does a bit of both. But sometimes you have people that only do one and not the other. Okay. So, so that we, we, need, we actually need to, in, in a way, reinvent the terminology of ENT. You know, if you've got a sinus problem, you're going to go and see the sinus surgeon. If you've got throat cancer, you're going to go and see the throat cancer surgeon. Mm. If you've got an airway problem, you're going to go and see the airway one. Mm. So it's not about having the ENT. That's actually the wrong thing in, in, in terms of the specifics. The generalization is, yeah, you're going to go and see an ENT, but you need to go and see the right one for the right reason. Right. So likewise, if people come and see me with throat cancer, I sit in the two, the throat cancer ENT because I don't do throat cancer work. You know, they might come through my door, but I bounce them on. Yeah. The problem we've got with airway is that um, people feel that they do airway, but they're not necessarily, you know, hitting with the same bat as, as some of us are. Okay. So that's the, that's the first point just to sort of understand an, an element of, of, of perception. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, you know, saying, oh, we need to send you to the ENT is actually as a starting point, undermining the progress you're trying to make. Mm. Okay. So you need to sort of, you know, reinvent the terminology, yeah. get, get, get people to understand that you're not sending them to the ENT. Mm -hmm. You're sending them to the airway doc. 
Yeah, and I say the air, I would say an airway-centric dentist, an airway-centric yeah. ENT. And yeah. you know, and people go, well, what is that? I think it's it's easier because we have dentists locally to me, several dentists who are airway-centric now, and this has even been within the last couple of years. Um, of but we really don't, there's one guy I know about in Virginia who I would say is truly airway-centric. There's another who I yeah. think is kind of getting on board a little bit more local to me, but we still yeah. have a lot of kids turned away for services that we feel like they yeah. need to be treated for. Um, no, you know, so I think that another question kind of going into that is what other what other terminology should we be looking for in, you know, is it just airway centric? Is it an airway yeah. ENT? Is that pretty universal? Yeah, I mean, in, 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 a, in, a, in a rough sort of nutshell, but I mean, they have to have some understanding and insight into sleep as well. Okay. Um, and, and, and again, there's varying degrees of education on sleep and, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have, have these complicated, you know, things and you've also got to know about allergies and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, one, one thing, again, just to give people some insight is, is that, um, you know, if we sort of, you know, talk about surgeons as a general sort of thing, and I'm not being disparaging, I mean, the research and science is there. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, collectively as a group, they tend to be on the narcissistic side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and coming with that is ego um, and associated with that is a feeling of knowing it all. Okay. Yeah. And then to sort of acknowledge that they don't know everything or that someone else knows more than they do is really not on their radar. And as, as a consequence of that, um, this is sort of following off what you sort of where you finished, um, is, is the analogy, again, I use is religion. Um, and I don't mean to be disparaging. I think it sort of helps people understand something. Yeah. So if I was to come to your home and tell you about my religion and tell you that you have to convert because I'm right and you're wrong, on that level, yeah. it's not going to work. Right. Uh, likewise, if you look at relationships, okay, so you're sitting down at a bar and I come up and talk to you and say, oh, you need to go out with me. Trust me, I know I'm good for you. <laughs> you're just going to look at me and just go, no, actually, I think I'm just going to go join my friends. Okay. You can't force relationships. Yeah. Okay. And likewise, you, you can't be in the business of trying to convert people. Mm-hmm. Um, what you need to find is, is those that have uh, opened to the suggestion and are happy to have that chat and have that conversation. Um, like, like this, I mean, you know, this, this came about by you asking me two days ago, can we have a chat? Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, it was just, you know, and, and, you know, you can vouch for the response. It was like, sure. When you want to do it, how about now? Yeah. Um, because I want to get this message out there. Um, but I want to get more than just what I know, but I think people need to get an understanding like, like you're sort of wanting in terms of how can we make this work better? Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing is you're already onto it. it, it people are different. Um, the, the second thing then is, the criteria that people have. So um, when it comes to taking tonsils out, just to reflect on, on what you were noticing, yeah. the, um, the, thing, the thing is that infection doesn't matter if there's a blockage, okay? And, and you're going to get lots of analogies from me today because it helps people have a mental picture, okay? No, it's great. So, so if you wake up and go to, go to your bathroom and your toilet is blocked, okay, um, there's no stench yet, but you can see it's not flushing. It's not clearing properly. You've got an obstruction. Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't wait for the sewage to build up and the flies to come in and fester the place and, and so forth mm-hmm. before you know that you need to fix something. Okay. Analogy. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when we deal with ENT, if we look at 80% thereabouts of what we do as an ENT, regardless of which part of ENT you want to talk about, 80% of it falls into two categories, infection or obstruction. Mm. Okay. So ears, ear infection or something's obstructed and they've got fluid and can't hear properly. Okay. Sinus, they're getting lots of infections or their nose is blocked and they can't breathe properly. Tonsils, they're getting tonsillitis or they're big and they can't breathe or swallow properly. Okay. So it's infection or obstruction are the indications. And some people have both. Okay. And what we know, if we sort of bring it back to things like tonsils and adenoids in terms of, you know, how does that 80% then split out between obstruction and infection? When we do uh, surveys of ENTs in terms of what they do, why they've done it, if we look at tonsils and adenoids, in general ENTs, it ends up sort of being a 50-50 split. Okay. When you go to pediatric focused airway ENTs, it ends up being an 80-20 split. 80% of the time, it's because of obstruction. So the majority of the tonsils that I take out have zero history of clinically relevant tonsillitis. Mm. Zero. Okay. And antibiotics are not appropriate. Okay. It's not appropriate to use antibiotics in the lack of, you know, in the absence of an infection. So to say, oh, look, we're going to give them some antibiotics is not a logical approach to the problem. Now, one of the things that's come onto the radar is the use of steroids, which is what you alluded to with Flonase, Nasonex, and there's plenty others out there. Mm-hmm. And there's some evidence that suggests that using those medications can help shrink the tissue down. The, the problem is when that has been then sort of reviewed and meta-analysis and, and looking at things is that research is biased and potentially flawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, my take on this uh, comes back to what is the ultimate consequence to a child that cannot breathe properly? And, 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 and then we come back to the science and the science shows, you know, in terms of general health, two really significant body organs that we can't replace. One is the brain and the second is the heart. Mm. Okay. And, and, and there are brain consequences and cardiovascular consequences of not being able to breathe properly. Yes. And, some of those consequences are reversible and some of those consequences are potentially lifelong and permanent. Mm-hmm. And one of the, again, the analogies that I use in terms of what we know about this from the brain point of view is a ship that's off course. So if we have a ship that starts at point A and it's got a straight line to port B, mm-hmm. if that ship is off course very early on in the piece yeah. and allowed to continue for a long time, of course, by the time we realize how far away we are from our destination, we've got a lot further to turn back. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what we know, is, is that um, there's, there's two things that determine how a, a child is affected by this. The younger that the problem starts, the worse off they are. Mm-hmm. The longer they're allowed to continue to have the problem, the worse off they are. And what the science is coming back repeatedly in terms of a time frame and an age is that the kids that are in terms of how we stratify the worst of the worst, kids where airway problems start before 18 months of age are the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. The next group under that in terms of where the line in the sand seems to be is four. The next line in the sand is six and the next line in the sand is 12. Wow. 
So, so that's in terms of, you know, we sort of look at, you know, how, what impact does this have on different age groups? Yeah. That's, that's how it stratifies out. Yeah. And I know I've read now, research. I just jump in here real quick. I've read research about obstructive sleep apnea in younger children and how, you know, very quickly because of the killing of brain cells, it drops their IQ by 10 points compared to their same age peers who have, you know, no obstructions and nothing else going on, which is just, it's fascinating and scary at the same time. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's the age side of it. And then the duration and the the duration, uh, and there's, there's a couple of good studies out there now that, that seem to be replicating because, you know, we want to replicate this knowledge. We don't want to sort of just rely on one piece of information and hang our hat on it. Mm -hmm. But there's a replication of information that's showing that it's six months. Anything, it only takes six months of, of this problem to cause a problem uh, with in terms of the, the brain. Um, and, it's, and actually, you've, you've used an important term there, and this is, this is where you'll have to tolerate me a little bit because I'm, I'm really pedantic about terminology because unless we're using the right terminology, we're going to go off course. And then this is you know, part of what I want to sort of share and reflect on too, obviously. Yeah. So, so when I talk about children, when I talk about airway problems, I don't use the term obstructive sleep apnea because mm-hmm. that's only one element. Um, I use the term sleep disordered breathing because sleep disordered breathing covers the spectrum. And given that we put that on the table, I think, you know, we use these moments of, of time and definition because unless people understand the whole picture, they'll then not understand why we're tripping up on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So historically uh, in terms of what happened in evolved, um, was that in adults, we noticed that those that were having car accidents were also having breathing and sleep problems, which we you know, called obstructive sleep apnea. Okay? So that was the invention of obstructive sleep apnea was because of adults being tired and having car accidents. It was, was, wasn't because of any other health issues or concerns, but we came to learn about those other issues and concerns as time went by with adults, such as blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and, and, and so forth. Hmm. What we, we noticed was that we had these kids that were stopping breathing at night. And, you know, they basically had the sleep apnea. And we're like, wow, th- these kids can have sleep apnea too. And we sort of looked at them some more and they were the kids in general that were waking up tired and grumpy and, and miserable and, and not having, you know, great school performance and education outcomes. And we started sort of exploring that and going, well, you know, why are these kids blocked? You know, they're not like these adults that we're seeing, which was the stereotypical massively obese person. You know, these the kids were, you know, thin as a rake, you know, weedy little kids. You know, they were sort of almost sort of, you know, failing to, to thrive in some regards. And we started to notice that they were getting blocked because of their tonsils and their adenoids were sort of, you know, the big ones. And we started clearing them out the way and we noticed remarkable changes in those children. So we sort of, you know, reinvented the wheel a bit and said, well, you know, let's, 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 let's go back to doing operations for these kids, even though they don't have tonsillitis, um, because the ones that we're doing on is making such a big difference that, you know, maybe there's, there's more to be had here. So that was the beginning. So the, the problem with medicine um, is that to, you know, for, for, you know, to make a diagnosis is we feel the need to measure it. Yeah. So we started doing sleep studies in kids. I'm sort of saying, all right, we've got this line in the sand with adults, snoring, sleep apnea. Let's put the same line in the sand for kids. Um, you know, do the sleep study. Yep, they stop breathing at night. Okay, we've got a reason to justify the surgery. It's got risks. And we'll come to that because I think it's all about perspective and, and, and context. 
do the surgery. Um, but you know, any kid that had a normal sleep study was like, Oh no, there's nothing wrong with them. Mm. But the problem was we could see that these kids were having similar problems. They just didn't register on the sleep study. So we started extending the idea a bit and, and sort of think, well, maybe they can have a normal sleep study, um, but they've still got a you know, significant degree of obstruction. We need to invent a new term. You know, as soon as we've got a name for it, we can actually fix it. You know, beforehand, you, you, know, you, you can't fix it if it doesn't have a name. <laughs> so we call that upper airways resistance syndrome. Yes. And that basically is kids where they are struggling to breathe at night. They were passing the sleep studies. They weren't stopping. They weren't having apneas. But you could see just physically looking at them, there was a massive amount of effort and struggle just to get what should have been a normal, easy breath. And again, they were waking up tired and they were miserable. And we dipped our toe in the water and we started ignoring the sleep studies and started fixing them. And they started getting better. Mm. And then we sort of went the next step along and said, look, we've got these kids that are snoring on a pretty regular basis. And we started doing the same thing. We started fixing those that had had signs of of sleep problems, daytime function problems, and they started getting better. So we thought, look, we've got to to invent, you know, a term for this. You know, we can't just say it's snoring. We used to call it primary snoring, sort of say, oh, look, they snore, but they're okay, but they weren't okay. Mm. So then we called it sleep disordered breathing, Mm -hmm. sort of try and cover the spectrum. But that wasn't enough because the next group that we caught hold of was the mouth breathers. And then now we've put mouth breathing into that spectrum as well. So when we talk about kids and the impact it has on them, uh, it's actually not even the degree of severity of their sleep disordered breathing that necessarily relates to the impact upon them. Some kids are very vulnerable to low oxygen levels and some kids are very resilient. Just like again, analogy, Some people can pick up a cigarette at the age of six and smoke to the age of 110 and it doesn't touch them. Other people, they're dead before they're 40. Mm. Okay. It's the same environmental insult, but your genetics have a a role to play in terms of your susceptibility and protection to that insult. Mm. And I'm certainly not advocating that people take up smoking to find out which side of the fence (laughs) they're on. So, so when it comes to kids, um, you need to be aware that there are going to be at times kids that have got big tonsils and they're actually okay. It, 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 it's completely contrary to what we want to know and believe, but it, it, it's possible. Mm-hmm. But it's not the majority. The, so, so that's the spectrum. So when we talk about you know, kids, we sort of go, let's talk about sleep disordered breathing because that just covers everything that I've mentioned as a group. Yeah. And then we can sort of you know, pick those out and talk about those individually. But the kid's brain, the heart, it, you know, that sleep disorder breathing as a spectrum impacts on that. It doesn't have to be the sleep apnea. And I think that's important for people to realize because my understanding to some degree is in terms of how the American healthcare, which I'm guessing is, is the majority of your audience, is, is driven, is, is that it's, it's not driven so much by clinical decisions, but by um, health insurance protocols. And, and one of their protocols is that these kids need to have a sleep study to prove they've got sleep apnea before the surgery can be done. That the was problem, one of my next questions is do we yep. need these sleep studies or is no. it, I basically tell families I'm, I'm good with you skipping the sleep study. We know there's an issue that needs to be treated and we're going to yep. treat it. The only reason why the ENT may send you for a sleep study is if we need that for insurance to then cover the procedure to remove the tonsils or, yep. you know, whatever the case may be. So is that, I mean, that sounds like where you're going with this. 
Yeah, well, I just I just want people to understand. So so we we don't have that you know requirement here in Australia. Okay. Um, we're still allowed to apply clinical judgment rather than being dictated to by um, bureaucracy and and bean oh, counters. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Um, so so for me personally, um, I can count the number of children that I have referred for a sleep study preoperatively mm-hmm. on my fingers and still have fingers left over. Wow. And that's in, 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 you know, 17 years of, of clinical ENT. Yeah. Okay. We also All just right. wonder, you know, the impact on the child, putting them through that sleep study. Yeah. And I've yeah. had client, I have, I've had patients where three-year-old who was one of the worst cases that the ENT had ever seen. He said worse yeah. than his overweight middle-aged men, as far as yeah. her obstructive yeah. sleep. He said it was absolutely obstructive. Um, he sent her for an emergency sleep study and then put her in for an emergency. I mean, he had to apply these words to the case to make it happen yeah. within two weeks of initially yeah. seeing her. That was an emergency. It was two yeah. weeks and later. And we, we see kids like that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it was just, it was incredible to see the hoops they had to jump through because of the American yeah. healthcare system. So yeah. Yeah. Look, and look, I'm not going to be disparaging about countries and healthcare systems because no country's got it right. But I think it's important for people to understand the differences that exist yeah. because I can talk about things and people can be like, that's a very foreign environment to be working within. So I think it's just, you know, if I just know, just, just appreciate, yeah. I do know these things exist over there and they're different to over here. And, and I personally, I think they're ridiculous um, to, to say the least um, <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of how it all works. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, you know, the other, the other, the other nonsense is just how expensive it is over there. Like I've sat down and done the math, having talked to people, when you look at your co-pays and everything, um, it's, it's cheaper and then people are, you know, astounded by this. It, it's cheaper sometimes with your co-pays in terms of you, if you've got to do the co-pay for your sleep study, then you've got to do your co-pay for your surgery. It's cheaper to jump on a plane with your child, fly to Australia pay someone in Australia to do it, stay here for two weeks to sort of have your post-op recovery, fly back home, you've still got change left over than if you'd gone through your insurer in, 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 in the United States. Yeah. So, so you know, it's, it's, it's a bizarre scenario where, where, where that can actually, you know, even exist. But that's politics. We're going to stick to clinical stuff. <laughs> yes. So, but, but, but part of that then is actually deliberate leading because of what you reflected on. So, so, you know, what is the reluctance to doing the surgery? Okay. Now there's a couple of things about surgery, regardless of how you want to talk about it, that, that need to be clear in people's minds. Okay. The first one is that there are always risks, Yes. always risks. We, we need to move away from this idea is, is it a risky procedure or not? Or how risky is it? Because that's very subjective. And we can compare. We can say, well, look, you're comparing it to like brain surgery or heart surgery. You know, we can say, look, you know, within the spectrum of surgery or there's varying degrees of risks, but there's also benefits. Okay. And if you've had a heart attack and and you're faced with the choice of, look, you can have the surgery, it may not work and you'll die, or don't have the surgery, in which case we know you will die. You accept that there's a risk of death with heart surgery because there's a benefit there that doesn't exist by doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So everything comes down to a risk versus benefit equation. So if we're going to focus specifically on tonsils in terms of why is there a reluctance, well, a lot of it comes down to personal choice and preference. You know, some ENTs are really uncomfortable just with operating on little kids. It, it's, it's not been their familiar territory. Just like I wouldn't be comfortable operating and doing brain surgery. It's, it's not my thing. Okay. Um, 
So some people just have a certain age that they feel comfortable with. And that's not to say the surgery is inappropriate or, or, or you know, appropriate based on age. It's based on their preferences. Hmm. So, so there's no magic age in terms of when it needs to be done. Okay. There's no like, Oh, we need to wait until they're two. Or we need to wait until they're four. We, there is no waiting in terms of, of, of relieving these obstructions. And, and the thing that, that in terms of risks, um, that, and I'll, I'll go backwards to what you mentioned because you mentioned dehydration first. Um, the reality is dehydration, in all, in all truth and honesty, and I'm not trying to sound callous, is no big deal. Yeah. Okay? Um, we know that the kids will get sore and they'll get miserable and they'll have trouble eating and they'll have trouble drinking um, and they'll lose you know, maybe even 10% of their body weight in, in the process of, of, of just, just getting through it. But they will get better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if your worst case scenario, and this is your worst case scenario for that, 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 that scenario, um, is that they need to come in, have an IV put in, have a top up of fluids. That's no big deal. Yeah. You know, well, if that's just kind of the scare tactic that I feel like they well, use. Oh, well, you know, we might have to might have well, to end is, up in the emergency room with an IV. And I'm thinking, yep, like, yep, yep. Well, if your child, that, gets, but... <laughs> no, but if your child gets bad gastroenteritis, yeah. And, and, and significant vomiting and diarrhea. You know what they're going to get? They're going to get an IV in fluids. Right. Yeah. People, go, do people panic about that scenario? No. Not the slightest. Yeah. So, so we shouldn't be generating unnecessary panic about the same scenario. Thank you. Yeah. In a different context. Yeah. Okay. Because that, that, that's, that is scaremongering at yeah. the end of the day. All yeah. right. Um, so that, so that's, that's one element to it. So, and then, you know, everyone has different experiences to it all. So again, 17 years and I've done countless tonsillectomies in, in, in a wide spectrum of ages in terms of my personal numbers that have then had to come back under this scenario into hospital and need a drip with IV fluids is less than 20 cases. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it's all right to talk about all oh, how bad it is, but also, to, well, well, how often does this actually really happen? Right. So that's that scenario. The, the scenario that is actually more significant is bleeding. Mm-hmm. And again, there's, there's an element of understanding and context to it all because otherwise it gets lost in, in, in terms of translation. Anytime we cut something, it bleeds. Okay. And that needs to heal. And then once it's fully healed, then we're, we're back to how we were. And in the meantime, if where we've cut ourselves becomes traumatized or re-injured, it can bleed again. When we take out the tonsils, they're at the back of the throat. We can't put a Band-Aid over that. You know, there's, there's, there's no magic dressing that we can put on there to cover and protect it. So, so we're left with a scenario where we leave a raw surface area. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the remarkable things about the oral cavity is how well it heals. Mm-hmm. People know that because when a tooth falls out, it bleeds a little bit, and then it's done. It, it's, it's starting to heal. Mm-hmm. You bite your tongue today, you have a look at it tomorrow, most of the time, you'd never know it would happen. Certainly two or three days later, you would never know it had happened. Yeah. It has a remarkable ability to heal. So we can use that, you know, in our back pocket as sort of saying, well, look, you know, it's not great that we're leaving an open wound, but we're doing it in, a, in, in an environment where it's actually going to cope really well. Okay. And there's a time period, usually roughly around about day four to day six, where the surface scar starts to fall off. The scab, sorry, starts to fall off, not the scar, the scab starts to fall away and you can have a raw surface underneath. And with that raw surface, um, if it's still in the process of healing, you can get some bleeding. 
And when we do sort of, you know, thorough, rigorous, you know, assessments of bleeding, um, you know, probably close to half of people that have their tonsils out will have some form of evidence of blood show up. So having some form of bleeding is normal, mm. but we've got to look at when is that element of bleeding significant and that element of bleeding is significant when it's a large volume. And, you know, depending on the age and the size, the smaller you are, the less you've got to lose. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the important things to understand is that yes, definitely in, in children <coughs> in pediatrics, it's actually a riskier operation in terms of the potential consequence of blood loss. Mm. But let's look at the scenario. So what happens if they have a significant amount of blood loss? And for me, like, you know, depending on the age and, you know, the person, I sort of try and give parents a sort of some sort of sense of parameter um, that they can relate to. And I say, look, you know, if it's a teaspoon or a tablespoon of blood, that's, that's nothing. You know, that, that's a small, that, that, that don't panic. But if they've got, a, you know, a good mouthful of blood, yeah. that's, that's a volume that's worthy of attending the hospital to have an assessment. And when we look at the numbers and so forth, that's, that's roughly about 4% of, of the time where the parent will feel the need to go to hospital to get things checked over. So 96% of the time, this child never sees the inside of a hospital again. Mm. Okay. And then of that 4% where they turn up, the majority of the time that bleeding stops by itself. They don't need any intervention. They, they, they stayed, they're observed. They've had an episode, it's, it's spontaneously resolved, they go home, that's the end of the story. There's a small group where there's a persistent ooze, it's not a major amount of bleeding, but it's oozing a little bit. We can put an IV in and we can give them medication to thicken up the blood to help it form a new scab. Mm. Okay. If it's not settling, if it's significant, then yeah, we take them back into the OR, into the operating theatre, and we go in there and, and reseal it. And in that scenario, you know, depending on where you're looking at, you're looking at overall about 1% to 2% of children. So 98 to 99% of children never see the inside of the OR again. So that's the risk in context. Okay, so you can't, you can't change the fact that those risks exist. You have to accept that they are real um, and you so be ready to manage them. Yeah, much more of a benefit to do the procedure. Yeah, so so that's that's the next that's the next bit that we swing around is like why so why we, would before we go into that I have one more question. Sure. Of course, totally. <laughs> um, because we have ENTs locally who will do a partial tonsillectomy where they are telling the families they are taking out eighty percent or seventy percent of the tonsil, but it's less of a bleeding risk. Um, mm -hmm. and that's why they do that. But then my question is, can't they, can't regrowth happen at that point much easier or, you know, what, yep. is there a benefit yep. to that or is that, you know, what's yep. your opinion on that? So, so, so again, I'll, I'll just help you with the terminology just so that people can explore the topic further. Yeah. So the removal of the tonsils is called a tonsillectomy. Yes. The partial removal is called a tonsillotomy. Okay. So it's a partial part, you know, we could call it a partial tonsillectomy, but it's technically a, it's a tonsillotomy. If we go back historically, history is a great teacher. Um, tonsillotomy as a word exists in the literature in the early 1900s. Okay, so they were looking and exploring at doing this sort of thing for these sorts of reasons, and they abandoned it. Okay, and if we and then, and then you know as technology has come about and, and we have new tools and instruments, we go back and revisit you know ideas and and, and try things. And that's where tonsillotomy is, is having a re-emergence of things. 
And if we look at the literature and so forth, it, on the surface, it sounds really appealing for the reasons that, that are espoused. Um, yes, it is less painful. Yes, there is less um, bleeding problems. Yes, it contributes to relieving the airway obstruction. But what is the longer-term viewpoint of these things? Yeah. And, and people don't want to look at that because, one, um, that takes effort. And it's just like, I've seen that one, I've fixed you, I want to move on to the next one. Um, but the, the stuff that's coming out is showing that if you go back and then three years post-surgery, okay, three years down the track, go and look at these kids. Um, there's one paper that shows 19, that's one nine, 19% of the children, their tonsils have grown back to the point that they're obstructive again. Wow. Okay. Um, that's the pretty high failure rate. Yeah. You know, you can sort of say, well, 80% don't, but you go, yeah, but 20% do. Yeah. So if I had a, a, a treatment for um, cancer um, that was 80% effective, 20% failure, you'd probably go, you know, look, that's pretty good, but you'd be looking for something better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that something better is a full surgery. Yeah. Because it, there's, there's an irony to this, because one of the issues with taking the adenoids out is the problem of them growing back again. And a lot of that's got to do with technique and, and, and you know, experience and all sorts of variables. So, so you know, one of the problems we, we lament is, oh, no, the adenoids have grown back. You know, we, we, we were so focused and determined on getting these adenoids out as best as we can, as thoroughly as we can, to limit or mitigate that risk. But at the same time, we then go and, and accept deliberately a partial operation there's a there's a logical disconnect there and and you know in, in some regard it's probably marketing more than than science that, that that people are falling back to and i'm not trying to be disparaging yeah. I'm just trying to say look this is it and, and what's really insightful is that uh, there's a research paper that's published where they present um they survey parents and say look this is in truth everything you need to know about a tonsillectomy the whole picture, not just our, you know, the good bits. These are the bad bits. And this is the whole picture on tonsillotomy. Okay. You know, this, you know, these are the good bits, which, you know, you're hearing, but this is the downside bits, which get underplayed. And then they said, you know, if faced with the choice, if your child needed the operation and you could choose from one or the other, because, you know, there's no halfways, it is one or the other, which one would you favor? Most of them favored the tonsillectomy. So you can be sold a story of, you know, it's less pain, it's less bleeding, it's a much better recovery and, and so forth. And you'll do it and you go, wow, that was so right. That was so much better than my next door neighbor that went and saw someone else that did the tonsillectomy. I feel validated and happy that I made the right choice and did the right thing and so forth. And you sort of get, you know, that confirmation that, yep, you know, this was excellent. And you're so glad that you were led down that pathway until the problem comes back. And then you've got to go through the OR again and an anesthetic again and the full proper surgery again. Yeah. And that's one in five kids yeah. that, that, you know, when it could have just been done once. So, so that's, that's, Thank you know, you. That's my perspective, helpful. that's yeah. my perspective. If you will look at it from a scientific point of view, you know, um, I don't know what history is going to teach us this time, um, you know, around, um, but you know, part of the problem is the people doing these procedures are not watching these kids for the next three years. Right. 
you know, they're, they're not coming back and getting, you know, six month reviews to see if they're growing back to see if they're in that 20% failure group. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as, as you can sort of read between the lines, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. Well, um, and, and building on that a little bit too, we get a lot of, we refer them for airway and we would really like somebody else to maybe do the phrenectomy at a different time because we'd like healing to occur for the airway first and then let's deal with the tongue. But the issue that we run into a lot in the U.S. is, well, they're now seeing the ENT who notices from our report or notices when they look in the mouth that the child also has a tongue tie and or lip tie. And then they decide, let's do the tonsils, the adenoids and the tongue all at the same time, which in, in my opinion from having seen some of these cases is just a major disservice to the child because when you release the tongue and then they're dealing with a major you know, healing of the throat, they don't want to move their tongue around. And now we have a, a, fun, a, you know, a child whose tongue wasn't functioning well beforehand. We got them ready. We got them to the point of being as ready as they could be for the phrenectomy with the pre-op uh, myofunctional therapy. And now we're sending, I just feel like we're setting them up for complete failure. That's my opinion. I'm not an ENT, but you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, no, 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 look, it's, it's, it's a perspective that's held in some circles and I, and I, I, I totally understand where it's coming from. And, and um, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I personally don't have a reluctance or a concern about doing it all, all in one setting, mm-hmm. um, partly because I want to limit the anesthetic exposure um, right. of the child. Yeah, and secondly, I that. Yeah, yeah, and if you actually look at what you can achieve with a phrenectomy mm-hmm. um, under a general anesthetic versus under some form of you know, you know, office-based procedure, um, we, we, we can really get down to, to those deep fibers, you know, that genioglossus, um, you know, you know, um, you know, attachments, um, with, with so little effort under a general anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem as you're alluding to though, is the rehab, yeah. you know, that, 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 that's the problem. So one of the perspectives that I might sort of spin around in terms of just reframing the thought process mm-hmm. is that, um, you have, you know, in terms of how you're looking at it, you've got, you know, two scenarios that you could possibly, you know, recalibrate here. One is we just do the tonsils and adenoids as step one mm-hmm. with a planned phrenectomy down the track as step two. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's definitely two procedures. That's an accepted plan. The other alternative is, look, whilst we're there, let's just do the phrenectomy. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a group of kids where that's actually going to be successful. They're actually going to do just fine out of it. And they're not going to need that second procedure. But in that group that where that doesn't play out and we need to go back and do it again, well, in your original scenario, you were going to be doing it again regardless. Okay. So we changed the scenario from two definites mm-hmm. to one definite and a maybe. So it, it's not necessarily always going to be you know, successful, mm-hmm. um, but when it is, you've spared that child a second procedure. Yeah. And that does make sense. I think, um, I think what we run into though, is we also feel like if it, if it is local and I'm, I'm very fortunate because I have an oral surgeon who does do procedures in office, but he does procedures all day long in the mouth. And so he's highly skilled. And so I'm very lucky. So, you know, whereas I know some people in office may not have the same, you know, level of, um, sedatives or I I don't know. Um, but he's highly skilled with the tool that he uses and, um, you know, so I much, so I guess, yes, we're putting them through two procedures. It's a local anesthetic in his office. He can do general, but it's, you know, we're only doing that with certain kids. And if we were doing general, it makes sense. I know that a lot of the ENTs have shared with us. We don't want to put, especially a child under 
general anesthetic twice. We want to, you know, especially that, that's you try and limit a much it. longer yeah. road if we have to do it yeah. a second time because we have to wait yeah. for a certain period. So I, I get well, that. So that does make yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that, 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 that um, comment about anesthetic is actually not true to, in terms of the, the, the modern agent. So in the past, that was true. So with anesthetic agents, we did have to wait, like ideally had to wait a month before you could expose someone a second time. Mm. Um, The the, the, the anesthetic medications that we use these days, um, you could have it every day for a week and there's no cumulative effect um, in terms of the things that used to happen in the past. Um, The concern though is whether there is an, you know, an impact of, of these drugs on, you know, on the brain that we're not fully aware of. Mm. Um, so, you know, like any medication, you're going to realize an anesthetic's a medication, any medication, you want to use the least amount possible for the least amount of time on the the least amount of episodes. Um, you know, so, but you know, if you've got to use it, you've got to use it. So if you've got diabetes and you need insulin, well, look, you're going to use insulin. Right. You've got high blood pressure and you need medication for that. You're going to do that. But if you need an operation, well, how can we limit it? How can we moderate it? Mm-hmm. Um, and look, and I, and I do do in-office phrenectomies as well. Um, it's just that if that child has other ENT things mm-hmm. and they're going to have a GA anyway, mm-hmm. well, there's an opportunity there for the sake of what's involved yeah. to just make the most of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that always plays out successfully or not yeah. um, is, is acceptable in terms of, when it does play out and, it's, and, it, and it, you know, it works, it's the second procedure they don't need, you know, and we worry about, you know, putting IVs into children for fluids. Well, you know, you've got to be mindful about putting needles into kids' mouths and, right. and coming with, you know, scissors and, and, and lasers and, you know, whatever the scenario that you want to portray. Um, there is an awareness there of sorts that, that can you know, have an impact on them psychologically. Mm-hmm. Under a general anesthetic, you've mitigated that. So I think it, it you know, I'm always mindful of talking about absolutes. I, I think you sort of look at and you say, look, you know, sort of different shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And you sort of say, look, you know, I'm, you can be absolutely opposed to all these things being done all at once um, because of the times it doesn't work mm-hmm. can blind you to the times that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like I said, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I totally understand, you know, the background to it in yeah. terms of the concerns and, and why, you know, on, on, on paper, it's, it's nice to do them separately, yeah. but I wouldn't be overly dismissive of, of the benefits of doing them concurrently either. Just, just to give yeah, a different sort of, sort of view. Yeah. 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 Thank yeah. you. Thank you. No, no, that's all right. Um, so, all right. So just going back again to sort of uh, what we were talking about before, um, sort of trying to get your sort of early opening statement. I think I've covered most things other than how do we sort of get them on board, but but we can come to that. Um, but we were going to talk about the benefits. So I'll do the benefits really quick and easy. Um, the, the, the Sentinel paper that this came out in 2006, and it's, it's one of the papers that I, I sent to you uh, preemptively. Um, and it was talking about kids with ADHD. Yes. So when, the, when this paper came out, that was actually the same year that I was doing that year of pediatric ENT, just pediatric ENT, that paper came out. And when it came out and I read it, I took it to the people I was working with and I said, guys, we've got this all wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason we got it all wrong is that paper was talking about children being given a diagnosis of ADHD or ADD, depending on how you want to describe it. Yeah. And showing that these children were turning up to an ENT clinic because of sleep apnea. And then, and at that time they were talking about sleep apnea. Yeah. Okay. Just to sort of talk about things in the context of history. 
So they, they were talking about sleep apnea being the pathology then. So they're turning up and they were scheduled for adenotonsillectomy. Those children were assessed by a childhood psychologist, psychiatrist for the criteria of ADHD. And a lot of them were meeting that criteria. Yeah. 12 months after their surgery, next to none of those kids were meeting that same criteria. So we have a problem with where a child with behavioral problems, concentration problems, education problems, depending on where they first present and end up will determine if they've got sleep disorder breathing will determine whether they get drugs or whether they get surgery. And the drugs are known to disrupt sleep patterns. These these amphetamine drugs are not good for sleep patterns. Like they're calming during the day, yeah. but they're you know, additionally not good for sleep. Well, and I, I actually took them as a, a college student when I got diagnosed with ADHD and probably uh-huh. because of my tongue tie and probably actually having sleep issues since I had never had a problem prior to the age of 19. Hello. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, they said, well, this is very bizarre because you have a high IQ, except you're, you're, you know, you're matching all of the symptoms of you're not the, the typical profile and you made it with great great grades and no behavior problems through most of your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and now, now that I know better, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. fascinating, but I've also yeah. read about this research and I, I would agree yeah. with you. And with this yeah. research that a lot of our yeah. kids who are, you know, presenting with a lot of these behaviors all have sleep disordered breathing and they're all being medicated. And I know from being on those meds, you don't want to eat. You're very irritable. You're not, it, it basically changes you as yeah. a person. And then you have sleep issues at night because you're so wired from, you know, the stimulation of exactly. these medications. And then, you know, whether it's time released or it's every four hours that you're taking it, it's still, they're, they're not healthy drugs. And I think they're now figuring huh. out the long, they didn't know the long-term effects of them either back when they yeah. put me on them, um, yeah. when they put tons of these kids on them. And so, you know, I think that there's still time for us to even figure out what the true, true long-term effects of these medications are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, we're treating the wrong, we're treating symptoms, we're tre- actually treating yeah. the wrong, wrong, wrong diagnosis. Right. So, so in, in some countries, and, and mine is not one of them, and I suspect yours is the same, but in some countries you cannot make the diagnosis of ADHD until the sleep has actually been formally assessed. You're actually not allowed to make that diagnosis or prescribe any medication for the same. I think they do. I, they, they don't, I, they're not doing sleep studies here or no. looking at sleep no. necessarily. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Like pediatricians are now apparently just handing out these medications without even doing complete workups and actual assessments on ADHD. Yeah. yeah. And the other interesting thing is, is that um, there's the whole range and spectrum of sleep assessment. So when we talk about sleep study, we sort of have the mindset of looking at it from the breathing point of view, but there's, there's a whole range of other sleep, um, um, assessment tools. Yes. Um, and if we, uh, and, and this is published research is if you use all the, the battery of, of, of those tests, um, which is, you know, pretty, pretty intense process to put a kid through. Mm-hmm. Um, when we do that in the ADHD kids, we can subtype the kids into five separate groups mm-hmm. based on the outcomes of their sleep assessments. History, you know, is, is all about making mistakes. Yeah. Um, the future is all about correcting those mistakes. Yeah. So when I, um, you know, look at, you know, what impact is it having on the child? Cause you sort of also had that and said, Oh, look, the child's okay. Uh, and so forth. Well, it depends what questions you ask before you can be certain that they're okay. Mm-hmm. 
So at nighttime, the things that I look at is, are they sleepwalking? Are they sleep talking? Do they have night terrors? Do they grind their teeth at night? Are they tossing and turning at night? Are they sweating at night? Are they moving around the bed at night? Are they having to wake up and go to the toilet frequently? Are they having, you know, waking up and coming into their parents' bedroom at night? Are they waking up tired? And then during the day, do they have troubles with their concentration or their behavior or their energy levels or their emotions or their education? You know, and there's a spectrum of things that can have, you know, an impact on those things. But there's any suggestion that breathing is part of it in terms of a sleep disordered breathing you know, issue. Well, we've got to get that out of the equation. Yeah. You know, you know, not every kid with ADHD that has sleep disorder breathing when they have the tonsils and adenoids out has their ADHD disappear. They actually happen to have both. Yeah. You know, kids can have more than one thing going on. Yeah. But let's get the obvious stuff out of the room first and then you can see what's in the corners. Right. How do you make a differential diagnosis until you've ruled out all the underlying possible causes? <laughs> get, well, if you get the big things out the way and then yeah. you, can, you can deal with the other stuff. But the other thing is, Dealing with that other stuff then becomes a lot easier too, because one, you know, it's there. Um, you know, so for example, we know that kids that have true ADHD and sleep disordered breathing that need medication mm -hmm. and you know, the medication works quite well when it's used in the right scenarios. Yeah. Um, when we deal with their sleep disordered breathing and they've still got the ADHD, they need less medication as a group. Mm. So, so, you know, we're using the least amount of medication to achieve the same effect. Yeah. because we're not having to over-medicate on top of the sleep-disordered breathing. Yeah. We're going to wrap up this episode right here and continue with part two in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these myotots, airway, and feeding-related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.